Yes. All right. Welcome, everybody, uh, to our next installment of the Encounter Spring Edition. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 6. We've entitled it, A Witness to the Covenant-Keeping God. This lesson's written by our very own uh, Pastor Logan Dixon. Before we get into that, I did want to highlight a couple things. Obviously, we talk about the Cumberland Road quite a bit. Uh, keep, uh, keep downloading that, keep listening, and then also share that with a friend. Uh, you can find that on any podcast hosting site that you can think of. But I also want to uplift a pretty cool thing that we've got going on with the discipleship ministry team. Nathan Wheeler, who is our youth and young adults coordinator, has partnered with a company called YouthWorks. And YouthWorks specializes in, in kind of getting uh, mission trips together for youth, youth groups. But uh, because this pandemic has happened, they've had to kind of restructure how they do things. And so one of the stuff, one of the things that they've done is to offer what they call, um, you know, collaborative teamwork kind of things. So they've written a curriculum and like a suggested idea of things that you can do in your own community. And, and they're giving that away to us for free. So if you would like to get that curriculum and some ideas on how you can do a, your community focused um, mission trip, then get a hold of Nathan Wheeler. That's N Wheeler, W H E E L E R. So N Wheeler at Cumberland.org. And uh, he can get you the information on that and get you all the, all this, the curriculum and, and these kinds of things. That way you can look at it. You got some time to think about your summer stuff, but basically what's happening is that uh, around July 24th, we're going to try to get as many of our youth groups in the Carmel Presbyterian church to commit to service in their own particular communities. And so uh, that way we have a day of service with our youth groups. So again, in Wheeler at Cumberland.org for the youth works curriculum and ideas for, for mission work in your hometown. And so that leads us then to our prayer for illumination today. Almighty and everlasting God, we pray along with Jesus in his high priestly prayer, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Give us grace to hear and be transformed by your sanctifying truth. Amen. And our scripture selection is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. But we've also encouraged people to understand this and, and to read through the rest of Stephen's um, sermon or his apologetic uh, before the, the Jews, um, which would be chapter 7, verses 44 through 60 as well. So um, continue on because it's all part of a whole and our memory verse then comes from Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So not a hard one this, this week. So use your mind and commit yourself to memorizing at least this verse. And then um, that way we're memorizing and treasuring scripture in our hearts together as a church. So, all right, that leads us to our introduction. So, Logan, I'm going to let you share about this very powerful um introduction that you you've got so when i was writing lesson when i was writing this lesson i really wanted a story that had to do with persecution i wanted a story that had to do with uh people who were really suffering for doing what was right in the eyes of god um because persecution i think is not limited to just what happened in the Bible. Persecution is not limited to just the first few centuries of church history. Persecution is something that has gone on throughout history, is going on now, and will continue to go on until Jesus comes back and makes things right. 
<clears throat> and so I think it's important for us to look at accounts of persecution and see how people are standing for the standing up for the gospel. Well, there is a, a woman named uh, Saint Maria of Paris. Her uh, real name is Maria Scopsofa. And I did not hear of her until a few years ago uh, when Eric Metaxas put out uh, a biographical book called Seven Women. He also put out another one called Seven Men. And each one contains seven different stories of uh, men and women who were faithful to the gospel. And, and, um, and uh, he talked about St. Maria of Paris and what she did for the Jews in World War II. And that always stuck out to me. And so I did some research and I found this story um, and this really moved me whenever I read it. Um, and what she was basically doing is she was housing all of these Jews who were being persecuted by, by the government and she was protecting them from getting taken away to these concentration camps and the way she was doing it is she was helping to fake baptism certificates for them. So if, if the Gestapo tried to come and take them away, she could be like, oh, no, they've, been, they've, they've left Judaism. They're no, they're no longer Jews. They're Christians now. And then, that would, and then that would kind of quell the government for a little while. Because I, I, think this, I think this part of history is lost on us as Christians. Because it's not simply that they were after ethnic Jews. I mean, they were after ethnic Jews for sure, but they were mostly after they were mostly after people who didn't conform to the faith of the German church. Right. Which is why you had that, which is why you had that split in of Christianity within German within Germany. You had, you know, pretty much the German church, but you also had uh, Bonhoeffer in the confessing church. You had hmm. Bonhoeffer in the confessing church and they were saying things, they were saying things. Uh, like, you know, we, we shouldn't be seeking power, which is what we're going to get into in the lesson. We shouldn't be seeking any kind of uh, worldly power or worldly esteem because it just leads to this domineering force. And, and Jesus doesn't bring salvation by force. He brings salvation by love. So with uh, St. Maria of Paris, what she was doing is they were faking baptismal certificates to, to protect the Jews. And she was eventually found out and and taken into custody and what what i've recorded here um in the in this edition of the encounter is a uh, record of the conversation record of the interrogation between um uh, one of the interrogators and father dimitri father dimitri was one of maria's uh constituents in all of this uh, he was an orthodox priest and this is this is what I'll just go ahead and read the conversation because I really, I really like this. The interrogator said, if we release you, will you give your word never again to aid the Jews? Father Dimitri said, I can say no such thing. I am a Christian and, I, and must act as I must. The interrogator struck Father Dimitri across the face. Interrogator, Jew lover, how dare you talk of helping those swine as being a Christian duty? Father Dimitri, after recovering his balance, he held up a crucifix and said, do you know this Jew? And for this, Father Dimitri was knocked to the floor. Mm. Mm. So they were sent, uh, Maria Skopsofa and Father uh, Dimitri Klep Klepanen and several of their colleagues, they were sent to a Nazi concentration camp. And uh, 
and uh, it was it was believed that Maria's death came from her volunteering to take the place of a Jew who had been sent to uh, one of the death chambers. Yeah, that's a powerful story. And yeah. let me, so you were talking about, so the flip side, I mean, in our culture today, there is a constant battle between like, uh, you've heard the phrase like freedom of religion or freedom from religion. Like that cuts both ways in the sense of it protects uh, people who are not part of the faith, but it also protects the faith from becoming what it became in Germany, like a national yeah. church becoming an arm right. of the of the government. And, and so like, that's really important. I, let me finish uh, this one little thing. So like that's into that basically is what happened then when Jesus was able to be crucified so easily. It wasn't just like Jewish priests that were. Um, just concerned about the spirituality of their constituents. They were also acting in somewhat as a, as an arm of the Roman government to say, we quell insurrection, you know, insurrectors and people who try to rebel and these kinds of things. And so it's very important, like you said, that the church doesn't become on a power trip. Right. And um, I'm, I'm only going to plug this because this is not the place to have this conversation. Um but if you want to hear kind of what me and my friend Chance have to say about the comparison between Nazi Germany and the rise of Christendom in the United States, then um, go check out that conversation that Chance and I had on the Monday morning megaphone where we talked about G.K. Chesterton, because that I feel like I feel like there's a lot of parallels between between the Christianity of America and the Christianity of 1930s, 1940s Germany. And what it is, is it's just people not really taking Jesus seriously. And they just, they want power and they want to use religion as an excuse to get power. That's the danger in religion from all times and all places, though. I mean, yes. really, I mean, that's the danger yeah. that every, every movement faces, whether it's like even denominations, like we become institutional. Uh, like when you first start, you're an evangelistic movement and you're really trying to save souls and you're trying to do good. But then all of a sudden you have to sustain yourself. Right. And, and the way you end up doing it is by uh, exerting power. Uh, it's part of it. And I hate it, but that's kind of part of it. And it's not good. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think, yeah, there is there is something to be said, but there's always so there's always a confessing church, too, though. Right. Like. There's always a church that has that theology of glory. And then there's always the church that practices that theology of the cross. Like it's always there. Um, oh, I have to tell you something good that's happened. Um, okay. At least I, I see it as a good thing. Um, the, you know, the United Methodist Church has had their controversy concerning, you know, traditional marriage or same sex marriage. Yeah. Um, well, there has been a sect of conservative Methodists who have had enough. They're breaking off. And they are going to form their own, you know, fairly conservative Methodist denomination. But you know what they're calling themselves? The Confessing Methodist Church. Yeah. Okay. And they're so, doing it. And they're doing it in honor of Bonhoeffer's Confessing Church. All right. So there's the symbolism there. And so, like I said, whatever, whatever the whether whatever the issue is, there is always even within the within the religions, or we'll say Christianity in this sense. There's always. There's always two groups and, and hopeful. And I would say it goes back to, you know, even to Israel, like uh, when Elijah runs away and thinks he's the only one. And God says, no, I got 3000 um, faithful Israelites in, right. 
you know, in the wings. So there's always a faithful, there's always a, and now the danger is, is that you as individuals, we as individuals have to guard our hearts because it's easy to get caught up in the power in the name of good, right? Like that's the heart. So we got to be careful. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. All right. So anyway, that's all I got. Good, good introduction, Logan. It was an excellent introduction. Yeah. So, all right. Um, exploring the scripture, historical and contextual setting. Um, so part of this was the part of our text was it's kind of mushed. So you have like the, the picking of some new leaders and then you have Stephen's, you know, testimony. And so uh, in this part, we're in this exploring the scripture, we start with this picking the picking the leaders. So go ahead and tell us what you're going with there. Well, um, and really, if you follow the text, it's all about Stephen. It's it's about Stephen becoming a deacon. And it's about Stephen, Stephen's martyrdom. And it, it follows Stephen. But I, as I was writing, I really wanted to get this in there about what is required if you're going to be a leader in the church, because I feel like there's a lot of people who are in leadership in the church when they have no business being in leadership in the church. You know, they these are the kind of people who would make fantastic CEOs. They would make uh, great organizers and administrators of big businesses, but they have no business being in the pulpit. They have no business serving as an elder. Um, Or they would be great at being the president of their local Lions Club or whatever, but they have no business serving as an elder or as a pastor because they're not biblically qualified. And we have people who are elders and pastors simply because they have the right last name. You know, I know of, never mind, I won't go into that. I'm going to stop myself. Um, (laughs) But let me just say, I know of some things going on. I'll say that. Um, But my, but what I really wanted to get to is that biblical qualifications for leadership matter. And whenever they were going, whenever they were looking for people to serve, they were looking specifically for people who could relate to the people that they were serving because you've had this mm-hmm. challenge. You had this challenge in the beginning of Acts where you had, you had the Hellenists and you had the Hebrews and they were not getting served equally or getting served the same. Uh, because what was happening is, and you can read the lesson to find out what the difference is. And we may talk about it here in just a minute. But the main difference was the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. And they had kind of assimilated to the culture under Greco-Roman culture. And traditional Jews, Hebrews, they didn't like that because they wanted to keep the old Jewish ways of of life. And they wanted to keep the old Jewish culture active and and moving forward. Um, And so there was this conflict of cultures between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And so as a result, Hellenists were being left out of the distribution of food and stuff whenever the church would gather and distribute to people as they had need. Well, you know, Hellenists were feeling left out. And so what happened is whenever the church picked deacons, they they picked uh, Stephen, who was not a Jew, I don't think. Uh, I'm pretty sure Stephen wasn't a Jew. You keep talking. I'll fact check you, right? (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Because I really don't. Uh, I'm matter of fact, I want to go out on a limb and say that all of them were 
all of the ones they picked were, were Gentiles, uh, you know, Gentiles by birth. But I could be wrong in that. But I'm pretty sure at least Stephen was not uh, a Jew. Um, you know, we brothers, we are not professionals, as John Piper would say. Um, it looks like Stephen is considered a Hellenistic Jew. Okay. On a couple of the sites that I looked at. Uh, right. Okay. I remember that now that you, now that you brought that up. So that makes sense because they're, they're picking people who will, who the Hellenists will be able to relate to and trust. Yeah. So I think one of the sure. other things that, oh, go ahead, Becky. No, you're good. Um, I think one of the ways we've messed up and it's all about pride. Um, I think like people view roles in the church as quote unquote honors and they're not their roles right they're like you have gifts you you exercise your gift or when paul you know describes the body of christ as a hand or a foot or whatever everybody has their role now we do have like you know some theology in which people who seek to be teachers should have due honor preachers should have due honor in 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 sense but only in the sense that they're functioning correctly in the church. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, so it lends itself. So the businessman wants to be an elder because it shows the extension of, of their supposed goodness or it influences or it helps their power. Right. right. And, and I'm, I'm probably going to get us in trouble here for saying this, but Stephen wasn't simply picked just because he was a Hellenistic Jew there were there were characteristics that they were looking for and it helped that Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew because he could relate to the people but there were certain spiritual characteristics they were looking for it's not like they formed a board and said now we've got to have at least three people who are Hellenistic Jews so we can be more diverse right and that's that's what happened and i think we've mm -hmm. got a problem now in 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 possibly in our denomination where you know we form boards and committees and we say well, we got to have uh, one woman and one african-american we got to make sure we're all diverse regardless of whether or not they're qualified to actually sit on that committee or board and i mm -hmm. think that's a problem like being a female obviously and being an african-american obviously doesn't disqualify you from sitting on a board or a committee the question is are you passionate about what the board or committee is about question is do you know what the border committee is about yeah so i can say this too because i've been on on some of these sides like there is a sense in which what we normally do like this cuts both ways and so this is where i'd push back a little bit in the sense of sometimes we're just lazy and we don't search out new ideas and so in a that, sense then we true. do want to reach out but that doesn't mean that you pick somebody that isn't qualified. You do have in your mind like, hey, we need new thought. Like one of the reasons as to why I think it's good to hire people, like I, I had an idea to change the encounter up a little bit. If you stay in the mode of like just keeping things going and you, you, you fish from the same pond for 30 years, then you do have, you'll, 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 you'll stay in that, you'll stay in that lane. But like, there is a sense in which creativity is, is strengthened when you have different, different thoughts, different opinions and so on and so forth. But I, I get yeah. what you're saying. I don't think, I think in the local church, it has a lot less to do with diversity than it does the last name. Right. Like, what, right. 
Uh, I think, but I think it is also an opportunity though, to, if, if you're at a point to where you can, and you're not sacrificing biblical mandates or biblical commands, then I think uh, the church itself can serve as a model of we're all one in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. If that means, right. So, you know, I think you hit on a good point in, in that exploring the spiritual gifts of people, um, you know, a lot of times, and even me personally, I think I've been stuck in the rut of doing the same thing over and over and over again, because I didn't think I had any talents or gifting in any other particular area. Um, but when I took that spiritual gifts test for a class that we had to take for pause, um, I was surprised at some of the things that showed up as uh, one of my spiritual gifts. You know, it's kind of like, well, I hadn't really explored that option, but maybe that was because I hadn't been given the opportunity to explore that option at any point in time in my life or my career path. Um, So utilizing what Paul calls, we are the one body, you know, we're hands and feet and eyes and ears and nose, and we're all working together, um, utilizing people's spiritual gifts and maybe helping uh, people define what that is and understand and discern what their spiritual gifts are is a great opportunity for our local churches because you may have people in your local church that have a beautiful gifting that they've never been able to utilize because they've never been asked or they don't know that they have that gifting. Mm-hmm. So I'll go for this though. Okay. So just say if you're a local church and you're trying to get a teacher and you know that there's a teacher in your congregation, you also know your teacher maybe is, you know, let's, this is hypothetical. Your teacher likes to drink a lot or likes to, you know, do some things that would not necessarily be of good, you wouldn't pick them just because they have the worldly, you, you might just say, we can't use them because this is, so Logan, right. in, in that middle paragraph on 44, I think you've hit it, like, number one, they had to be someone of good standing, and good reputation, right, so, like, just mm-hmm. because somebody has the ability to do something doesn't mean that they check off box number one, Right. right. And then they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't all well, how did, they had to be full of wisdom. And I think that's yeah. that's what you're saying. Right? I mean, we have to we have to be attentive to those things. Yes. Right. And, and I, how I, do you, I think that's yeah. And how do you judge if someone's full of the Holy Spirit? Well, we have fruits. Fruits. Right. Yeah. So so you look at the fruits of the spirit and you test this person's life. I, when I was uh, when I was ordained at the when I was ordained um, at the first church where I served um, before coming into the Cumberland Presbyterian church, um, the, the pastor let me know, Hey, we want to ordain you, but we also want to watch your life. And so they, so the pastor met with me on a regular basis and watched my life for about six months. And then after that six months, he was like, okay, I think you're ready for this. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, and that's where I don't think there's a pastor listening to this that would not think, oh my goodness, how did this person become an elder? And there might be some elders listening to this thinking, how did that guy become a pastor? <laughs> right. So, right. so like it goes both ways. But so in some sense, the church brings upon its own misery. Um, I, there's a football coach that once said, you recruit your own problems. Um, and, and I think maybe the church has done that as well. 
in some mm. yeah so anyway yeah. but yeah i think that's a uh, that's right um what else is in here um you did bring up on the on page 45 um then it kind of gets into Stephen. So it said, after that problem was solved, another one arose. Um, and that's on that first full paragraph of 45. Mm -hmm. um, there's a yes. clash between the religious leaders and this new sect. Go ahead. Yeah. So basically what was happening was um, this new sect, it didn't even, wasn't even called Christianity. It was called the way. This, this new sect of people who a lot of people just assumed that this was some fringe sect of Judaism. Right. Um, but it, they started coming along and started preaching about this guy named Jesus who rose from the dead and he, he had all the answers and he was the fulfillment of all these prophecies of scripture. And they started, you know, all these crazy people talking about this guy raising from the dead caused a lot of problems. Um, and the Jewish leaders, they didn't like that. They didn't like what was happening. And so they rose up against, um, I'll just, I'll just read this. Uh, I, I can write a lot better than I can talk. I'm not sure if y'all noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they believed that this new sect was a bunch of trouble causing radicals since the religious leaders couldn't properly make an argument against the things that Stephen was saying and doing. However, they set up false witnesses against him and twisted his words so that it would appear to people that he was blaspheming God and the prophets of the Hebrew scripture. This was exactly what Jesus said would happen. Uh, in Luke 21, Jesus said, they will arrest you, persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, I, what I should have done is I should have also compared that to uh, the text in John 16, where Jesus said that he was going to uh, go away, but he was going to send an advocate. He was going to send a comforter. And the, the comforter will teach you all things to, to say when you are persecuted. And so you, when you connect those two passages to the qualifications for a deacon, being full of the Holy Spirit, being full of wisdom, that's where, that's where we really saw Stephen's qualification for the diaconate on display. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah um, so absolutely and for those you know for for y'all country bumpkins out there the diaconate is a fancy word for being a deacon being a deacon so i i, I deacons i don't think are they they used to be there's not a lot of deacons anymore in the criminal procedure no. certain churches still have them um no but they are biblical so i think they are biblical and so and and I think that has led somewhat to the misunderstanding of an elder in our churches. Yeah. So this is, that's a good conversation point right there. Elders are not deacons. Deacons are not elders. They have similar qualifications, but they are not. And I feel like in a lot of our Cumberland Presbyterian churches, um, elders function as deacons. Right. And it shouldn't be that way. Correct. Elders are more pastoral. Yes. Uh, deacons, they handle things like maintenance around the church. They handle things like making sure the finances are in order. And elders, elders. are supposed to be, we'll say, non-teaching pastors. Well, I'm I mean, not even going to say non-teaching pastors. Well, yeah, I, yeah, was, I shouldn't. Yeah. 
I, I would I think I, I'm I'm pretty sure according to First Timothy chapter three, elders should be qualified to teach. Like, they should be. I shouldn't have said non-teaching, but they're not the pastor. But they are. Right. They are. They're. They're not bring. They're not administering the church, and they're not. But they are in every sense. Visit the people. Pray for the people. Teach the people. Anything that a pastor yes. would do above and beyond, you know, in at least in our system, serving the sacraments and uh, preaching every Sunday, every Sunday, or right. leading like, worship. They are here's, the elders. Yeah, like here's the thing. If I'm sick as a dog on Saturday night, early Sunday morning, I should be able to call up any one of my elders and be a, hey, bub, get something together to preach. I can't do yeah. it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. any, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to offend some of y'all, but you got these CP churches that don't have pastors and they're having people, they're having problems getting people in the pulpit. It's like, man, you got elders, don't you Yeah. put them up there? Like they, like that's literally their job. And if they can't do it, they shouldn't be elders. Right. But we have trained that otherwise. And it's, I think you also brought it up the whole, we are not professionals. Pastor, yeah. Pastoring became a profession. And so like we pay somebody to do these things and therefore we don't. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. I said, you recruit your own problems um, and you train your own problems in a lot of ways. So, yeah, it's true. Um, I wanted to comment just one little thing. Jesus, in your very last paragraph of this exploring the scripture section, Jesus promised to be with his followers during times of crisis and persecution. Sometimes it seems like culture is becoming more and more intentional about forcing the church to the margins. Will we, the church today, stand strong and trust that Jesus is with us? Uh, when I was preparing for my Easter sermon, I thought about when Christ says in this world, you'll have trouble. And I was, I wanted to try to figure out exactly why. And, and so in Easter, Christ defeats death and sin and the world system that's against God. And so I imagine the world, like one of those scared, abused animals that have been brought to the pound. And like, if you try to get near it, it lashes out at you. Right. And so this is the way I understand persecution that happens to Christian. It's because the world is dying and it's lashing out and it's trying to take everybody else out with it in an Mm -hmm. effort to stay alive in some way. And so um, that's the sense in which we'll have troubles. Right. Um, And I think that's important to know. It's because the world is dying and it's trying to take everybody out with it as much as humanly possible. Becky, you got anything on that one you want to highlight? That was that was a really good point. Um, yeah, I would like to highlight. I'm pretty sure um, that we have a blueprint for elder training. We do. Um, and that is through, is that through Pam? No, Discipleship Ministry Team. Discipleship Ministry Team. Okay, so through the Discipleship Ministry Team, if you are an elder or a pastor that is watching this and you're interested in correct elder training, Uh, We have a blueprint that is available um, where you can sit down and teach the elders on what is expected of being an elder and how to properly be an elder. Even more than that, we'll come visit you. There Uh, you go. Once once you're allowed to travel again, right? Yeah, and so what we've done, we do have the elder training version online too. So like we have somebody, it's already been recorded and all that jazz. So like if you wanted to just contact Eleanor Brown, uh, ESB at cumberland.org and she can actually send that and anyway well I don't know how true this is so if, uh, I, I don't know how true this is so if I'm lying then well that's not that's not unusual but 
Um, I've heard rumors that in the future there will be a POS track for people who want to take classes to be an elder. That would be good. I don't know. That would be yeah. cool. But that would be, I think anytime an elder can be trained in anything, I mm-hmm. think it's faithful to their calling too. Yes. So um, as much as we have continuing education for pastors, it probably needs to happen for elders too. Uh, again, it's not just a position of honor. It's a position in which you I, work in the church and the more tools you got, the more you can work. I would love, yeah, yeah I would love to go to POS over the summer and meet elders of CP churches who are just like, yeah, I'm here because I just want to serve the church better. Right. That would be cool. And maybe we can get to that. That wouldn't be bad. All right. Then I'm going to push you on to the digging deeper part. Uh, of the scripture. So tell us what you were going for there. Um, filler. No. Um, Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in Stephen's sermon, he kind of retells Israel's history. Right. And, you know, we, we don't like to, in our culture, we don't like to waste words, or at least some of us don't. Um, we don't like to waste words and we don't like to, um, we don't like to repeat things, but Stephen's repeating Israel's history to people in the, in the audience who know their history. Like Stephen's a Hellenistic Jew. He knows all this stuff and all the people who are about to kill him are Jews. They know all this stuff. So why is he telling it again? Well, he's doing what the, what the prophets and the psalmists did back in the old Testament. He's retelling their story as a way to remind them where they come from and as a way to tell them where they're going, because you're go you're always going somewhere, right? Whether you're in a state of repentance or whether you're in a state of rebellion, you're going to wind up somewhere. And by retelling Israel's history, Stephen gives his audience an opportunity to see where they're to see where they're going and find out whether or not it's the direction they want to head down. Yes. And like that's um, we offer a blueprint as well about simply telling the story and the the words of scripture and vocabulary of faith and all that good stuff. Because, as you said, we we get creative in our worship services, which is great. But sometimes people are not connected with the story. Yeah. And just retelling the story. Um, oh, let me ask man, this, like- uh, Logan and, and Becky. And I even mentioned it when I got up to preach Sunday at Easter. Like, so we've been doing this for 2,000 years, right? Like the same message of he's not here, he's risen. Let's do it one more time. Why? I mean, like, why? Why do we do? I mean, like, what's the, why is it that this is a pattern in scripture in the Psalms, recounting the mighty deeds of God? Or when the prophets say, here's what, here's what, what happened in the past. Why do we do it? Why do we continue to do it? Why does it? Why should it still happen? I think it's and it's important if you look at the Old Testament, all the festivals that they celebrated. It was the continuing retelling of the story of where God had brought the Israelites out of. And as we move forward, you know, we have a church calendar and we have different holidays that we celebrate: Christmas and Easter and Pentecost and the Ascension. And all of these are important because we're forgetful. We get so inundated and bogged down with our daily life 
um, that we forget the things that Jesus did for us. And it's important for us to continually remind ourselves and those around us of what Jesus has done. So whether it was through the Old Testament and the festivals that they celebrated every year to remember the things that God had pulled Israel through. And then today, as we celebrate those holy days and the beautiful things that Jesus conquered, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, um, the Holy Spirit coming and, and coming upon all believers. And it's important that we continually remind ourselves of how amazing these events are because we forget, we forget how amazing God truly is. Yeah. Logan, what you got? Well, Becky, you just stole my thunder. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we do. You've heard me say it before. Uh, Luther, uh, Luther was asked one time, you know, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday? And he said, because my people, my people forget it every Monday. Mm -hmm. Right. So, we have a tendency to forget, and the church calendar reminds us of the story of Jesus and the story of the church. And I don't think enough of our churches are, and I don't just mean CP churches, like I know not enough of our CP churches are doing it, but like the church at large isn't acknowledging the church calendar because, oh, that's a Catholic thing. Oh, what a terrible excuse to not do something. But, you know, it, the church calendar tells us where we are in history, and it tells us the story of Jesus. Why do you not want to celebrate that? Why do you not want to tell that story over and over again? And mm -hmm. we, so what we do every year is we start at December, we start at Advent, and we tell the story of Jesus. We tell the story of his birth, his coming into the world. Then we go into Epiphany the wise men bringing gifts to Jesus, the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We tell the story of Jesus's baptism during Epiphany. And then we move to Lent for Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness. And it's our 40, it's our 40 days in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. It's where we fast. It's where we pray. It's where we get serious about our repentance. And then we go to Easter where we celebrate, where we, where we celebrate the risen savior of the world and our and then resurrection and, right yeah. and our own resurrection and easter isn't just one day it's an it's a season right. it lent is 40 days of fasting easter is 50 days of feasting and so you know that that's a good thing for you preachers to remember if you like cliche stuff Lent is 40 days of fasting. Easter is 50 days of feasting. And it's not just a one-day event with an Easter egg hunt. It's this whole season where we celebrate the concept of resurrection. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is descending on the church, and we get to tell the story of the church. You know, this is a good time to preach through the book of Acts. This is a good time to talk about what Paul is wanting to do in the church at Corinth. This is a good time to talk about what God wants for the image of his body. I think also along with all of that, uh, which I heartily amen, would be that also we're participants in the story in the sense of when we rehear the story, we are in different positions in life. Sometimes we're the Pharisee. Sometimes we're the hard-hearted people. Sometimes we're the person, we're the, we're the sinner at Jesus's feet, just wanting to get a hem of his garment. And, and you can find in your life situations, God has acted like I, I, everybody's special. I love everybody. 
but you're not in the sense of you're human. And you come to Jesus with the same needs, desires, your same breakdowns, your same terrible attitudes as a thousand people who have gone, you know, millions of people who have gone before you. And, and God's story speaks to every single one of those. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And it's, it's a good true story. Yeah. And um, it's worthy of retelling over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's it. So usually when the prophets recounted the glory or the, the goodness of God in the past, it was, it was for two reasons. It was either to say, here's why we're praising God. And then the other reason was to say, you're just like all the other sinners. Like you can't see God's goodness in your own heart. Right. So it was a, mm-hmm. it was a message of, it was either a retelling for praise or a retelling to say, you're not right. Uh, right. The, oh, I can prove it. You're just like your ancestors, stiff necked, hard hearted, hard hearted. Um, yeah. Which we can be anyway. All yeah, right. Any more on that one then? I think maybe we kind of, I got a, I got one question though. Cause I, I know this is not the discussion question for this week, but I really feel like we need to talk about this. Yeah. One of the discussion questions here is what is the purpose of preaching in the church? What do we really want to hear in sermons? What, what do we really need to hear in sermons? And I think that's an important question to ask because Peter is this retelling is Stephen retelling the story is his sermon to the Pharisees, to the people who are about to kill him. And they're angered by what he has to say. They're angered by the preaching of the word and they kill him. So let me just say this. If you're a pastor and you've been a pastor for a while, if your church doesn't want to kill you, you're not doing something right. Every once in a while. Yeah. I think that's the truth. In this sense, I think you have to, like, so, okay, you're not Stephen. In other right. words, you're not preaching one time. When you're called in the pastorate at a church, you're preaching 52 weeks a year, 50, mm-hmm. whatever your vacations. And so you can't constantly be just hammer on people like Stephen would hammer on the, on the Pharisees all the time. If I can't, if you can't. And here's oh. why. Because your, your people will stay infants. They'll be in a progressive state of, I'm useless. God save me, which is great and fine. But then you're also not feeding them any more of the teachings, just edification, discipling, if that makes sense. And yeah. I know it doesn't, discipling doesn't just happen, happen in the service or just in worship. I know it happens everywhere right. else. But I, I guess what I would, I guess what I'm trying to say is, Logan, I think when, as a, as a preacher, I want them to hear conviction. I also want them to hear praise and I also want them to hear worship and all these things. And so, sure. Yes. Um, but, but I, so what you were saying is I think there comes a time and it, and it has to be in love. It can't be a preacher trying to rail against their congregation. I think a, a, a sermon of conviction with a pastor in a church, a sermon about conviction comes from a heart of love, mm-hmm. not like y'all are terrible and I want you to be wrong. It should almost I'll say this, like a pastor's dreaming if they think they're going to have five, seven years of nothing but cloud nine love. (laughs) And that goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. As, as, as I try to remind my congregations when we're doing things is that we're a family. I mean, we really are a family. Now, does that mean that you like every member of your family? No, of course not. You know, we have, we have crazy aunts and uncles and siblings that, you know, really 
drive us crazy at times. And it's the same is true in a church. It's never going to be a hundred percent peace and love and just cohesiveness all the time, but there's always going to be some element of, you know, we don't really like this person or don't like what they were doing. But when you look at your congregation as these are your family members, these are the people that you have chosen to do life with to share the gospel of Jesus with, to encourage and build up and love each other so that when you leave the four walls of the church, that you are still sharing the gospel message with everyone else that you meet and inviting them to become a part of your family, that it's not always going to be perfect, but it will be beautiful. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I, you're talking about how you can't always hammer on the congregation. And I, I jokingly, I jokingly said you can't, but honestly. <laughs> Are you honestly, sure you were joking, Logan? Well, <laughs> Just no. Ask. <laughs> no. And then, so, but, the, but, but the, the flip is different. Like the congregation can't always be harping on the preacher too. Right. I, I mean, you know. But like, no, I was, as I was trying to plan out what I should preach, I just, I have ever since, it just seems like ever since November, well, with the exception of Advent, because I feel like Advent was pretty, I feel like Advent, you know, with COVID and everything, I feel like that was pretty, I don't want to say fluffy, but I feel like it was pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but it just seems like since November, I've been really preaching these sermons where it's just really hard and, and I want to preach grace. I want to preach mercy. And it's not that I don't preach grace and mercy in those sermons, because I do. But it's just like they're really hard texts. They're really hard things to confront. And then I thought, okay, well, Easter's coming, so that'll be nice. I can just preach the resurrection. But then I see like all the lectionary readings for the epistles are like First John, and I'm like, oh no, yeah. I I don't like First John. Yeah, I don't know. I guess when you ask the question, what is the purpose of preaching in the church? That's different than preaching in front of the Sanhedrin before you're about to get stoned. It, right? it is. But it, I'll it say this. Different. I mean, like the purpose of preaching in the church is to develop saints. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do. And like, sometimes that means asking hard questions. Preaching and, hard and things. Convicting people to re-examine their life. Yeah. the decisions that they're making, the, the daily choices that they have before them and to ask themselves, is this edifying? And is this building up the gospel? Is this sharing the love of Jesus with others? Or do I need to change? And that's never easy. That's never a, an easy thing to do. But at the same time, when you as a church gather around each other and share in that ministry and in that life, whether it's pastor, elder, uh, just somebody that comes on Sunday morning, you, you're part of that family and you're building up, you're changing, your growth is beautiful and edifying to the rest of the church, even through those hard times. And it's through those hard times when you recognize that Jesus is confronting you with something that you need to change that the rest of the, your church family should rally around you and build you up and encourage you and help you along as you're recognizing the change in your life. Um, and that's what we should be doing. Um, you know, so yeah, there's moments of difficult, but there's also moments of just encouragement and beauty all, all wrapped, all wrapped together. Yeah. I, I want to sure. 
echo what Becky says. I mean, also, if if the church doesn't instruct people on how to praise and celebrate, mm-hmm. who, where else are you going to learn? So sometimes, right. you know, like a, a sermon has to be simply celebratory that God has brought us out of Egypt or out of sin or whatnot, and 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 you learn to praise and worship. I, you know, I I I really some Sundays I just want to go all TD Jakes and. <laughs> Just preach one of yeah. those shouting sermons, and I don't think that's bad, really. I mean, like, well, no, I don't think funny if I either. tried to do it, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, there's been times where you simply just celebrate that you don't have to have yeah. that hard word all the time either, uh, because sometimes you just celebrate because God's good, He's yeah. really good. God's good. Touch three people, say God's been good <laughs> all the time, all the time. No, it's true. All right, so let's go on to the applying the scripture section because we've had a good discussion there. Um, I really do appreciate your applying the scripture section, so please um, get us get us to where you were going. Yeah, so basically, uh, we we started out in American culture as as you know good little good little Christian boys and girls, and there was a time where Christians were in a position of power simply because of their faith, because, you know, they, they could be trusted. You know, you could trust a Christian to be a community leader. Many country clubs were offered uh, discounted or even free memberships to their local ministers. Um, I really, I really want to call up the local country club and see if I can get a minister's discount. Just, I would like I'm to just hear saying, the conversation. I'm just saying, I, I am, I am not above asking for clergy discount. Just I'm saying. <laughs> But, uh, you know, many department stores offered significant discounts to ministers looking to buy suits, suits for church and things of that nature. Um, but we don't have that advantage anymore. We, uh, in some cases, it seems like being a person of faith is almost a disadvantage. Like, it's almost like we went from our faith being an advantage in society to it not being an advantage or disadvantage. You know, it's just kind of a neutral thing. And now we're, we're moving, I think, towards a place where being a person of faith is a disadvantage. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's illegal to discriminate against someone in the workplace based on their uh, faith, but we know that doesn't stop it from happening. You know, you, there's several situations, I'm sure, where there's been conversations of people who've said, you know, well, you know, you shouldn't hire that guy. He's a Jesus freak. He'll try to convert the whole office or, you know, that, that guy, that baker over there, he won't just bake the cake. So, you know, and I got my opinions on that too. Um, But, we don't want, and you know, they'll say things like, we don't want one of those closed-minded bigots. You know, Christians are losing their influence. Christians are losing their places of power. And I don't think that's a bad thing. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons is, you brought it up here, like in First Samuel, basically the Israelites wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted some power, earthly power, like Egypt, Egypt had, or like whoever had. And so they were like, let's, let's bring in the king so we can have that right that manifestation mm-hmm. of power and of course this, you know didn't work out completely well for them no right see here's the thing it's it's pretty you know it's pretty good to live in a society where you get treated well because you're a christian but that's not where you're meant to live i don't think and i don't and, and i'm not really even sure that that's where you're supposed to feel comfortable either no um no but we're we're moving towards a place where 
becoming being a Christian is a is a disadvantage. And it's really hard for people to adjust to that. It's really hard for Christians to adjust to that when they've lived in a world for so long where they were catered to. Right. Um, but right. we're not meant to be catered to by the world. No, we're meant to serve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. I think you put it really well in here. You have this line. It's in the first full paragraph at the top of page 48. It says they depended solely on God and that was enough. And I thought that was just, that was a beautiful, beautiful sentence because how many of us honestly can say that we completely and solely depend upon God for everything and it's enough? Um, That's hard. I mean, that's hard because we live in a society that tells us that the bigger, better, faster is, is the better thing. It's the best thing for us. And as a Christian, we're caught in between depending solely on God for everything and, and trying to keep up with the Joneses or the Smiths or whatever name it is that you, whatever colloquialism you use. Well, Um, and I'll say this too, uh, Sorry if I interrupted you. No, you're okay. <laughs> but um, I'll say this too. Like Jesus promised us suffering. Like he said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so I think whenever we try to make ourselves more comfortable in the world, we're just delaying the inevitable. We're, we're delaying what Jesus said would happen to begin with. Yeah. Like, well, we better vote for that guy. That's the Christian vote right there. He's going to help us make a Christian society. And really all he's going to do is use Christianity to get into power and he's going to use the church for leverage. And it's just going to be the German church all over again. That's what I wanted to bring up. I mean, we, it's easy to talk about politics and religion because that's the way America has grown up. Um, But I think that's the most clear manifestation of what you're speaking of Mm -hmm. as Christians the reason why we have trouble in the world is because we're trying to call people to a new reality that bucks up against the secular thinking, material thinking, the reality on this earth. And so the easiest manifestation of it is, is when the church uses its influence and political power, right. By backing certain candidates or whatnot. And, and the problem with that is whether it's left or right, doesn't matter. Uh, which way you go, you're basically swallowing a poison pill at the same time, if that makes sense. Like if you endorse this platform, you're endorsing a lot of things that should make you vomit. Again, either the left or the right. And so by trying to use the power of the world, it, it, by by endorsing, again, conservative or liberal, what we're doing is saying, um, we'll use our own power and means and try to make this as best we can when God says, nah, I've got something completely different in mind and you can't Mm -hmm. find it through politics or power. Mm -hmm. So yes, because that was the point. That was the problem in first Samuel was that Israel rejected God as their King. It wasn't it. They wanted to be so much like all the other nations around them that even when Samuel came to him and said, listen, a bad idea. If, 
is this really bad idea. You know, this is what's going to happen if you get a king. They're going to do this and they're going to do this and they're going to do this. And he listed all of this stuff. And the nation was like, oh, yeah, that we don't care. That's okay. You know, yeah, we'll be enslaved to the king and we'll have to give up our sons and daughters. That's okay. We just want a king. We <laughs> want to be like everybody else around us. And it wasn't that they were rejecting Samuel. It was re- rejecting God. It was rejecting God as their king, as their sovereign leader. And we do that today. We reject God as our sovereign leader by subscribing to uh, either left or right values and going, well, you know, I know there's all this bad stuff in here, but I really like this one thing. And this one thing I really want to endorse. And so we end up rejecting God and endorsing something that we should not, even though it's bad for us. Right. We make it our king. I started. I started reading this book, and it and I got about four chapters into it, and I realized the book was so good that I actually had to buy copies of it and give out to people. Um, but the book is called Against Christianity by Peter Lightheart. Um, and Peter Lightheart's a Presbyterian pastor, and the book obviously he's not writing against Christianity, even though that's the title. He's writing a, the like the premise of the book is he's against how people use the word Christianity. Yeah. Um, And so I've been reading it and he was talking about, he he starts out one of the sections with this really funny conversation. It's a fictional conversation that might take place if uh, Peter, James, and John um, had a conversation with George Barna about how to market the Christian faith. And and the, the conversation ends with George Barna saying, so you mean you people are an alternative to the government? And they're, they're like, yeah, we're an alternative to the state because, you know, Jesus is our king, not Caesar. And he said, well, you know, th- this isn't going to work. Matter of fact, this is illegal. I'm just going to have to leave right here. And so he just he just rushes out of the room. And so Christianity is not very marketable because of that. And and uh, Lightheart goes on to talk about how. Lightheart goes on to talk about how Christianity, as you know, as you know, the gospel, the the life life in the kingdom of God, as the apostles preached it, was not simply an addition to the culture; it was an alternative to the culture. And the problem is, we have created a Christianity that is an addition to the culture, that is an addition to our way of life, and it hasn't become our way of life. Yeah, I could, I could say, I could see that. Uh, I'm going to share, here's a quote from from Lightheart. This is a quote I shared on Facebook. In short, Paul did not attempt to find a place for the church in the nooks and crannies of the Greco-Roman polis, or the political culture. The church was not an addition, but an alternative to the koinonia of the polis. And so what he's saying there, if you don't know Greek, (laughs) is that koinonia is this Greek word that means intimate fellowship, joint partnership, communion. Right. And so what what Paul preached and what the apostles preached was that the only way you're going to have this this joint participation, this communion with God is if you find it in Jesus Christ and you see him as the real king, the true king, not just a king of a spiritual realm, but he's king, Mm -hmm. period. You can't see Caesar as king. You can't see the state as king. You can't see the government as the defining force of your life. You have to see Jesus as Lord over all, or you simply don't 
get it. And what we say is that, and what we've done in our modern society is we've said, well, Jesus is Lord over here of all these spiritual things that we do, but I'm Lord of everything else, or the government's Lord of everything else, or the CDC is Lord of everything else. My Lord, I'm about to offend some folks. But but you've got to say that Jesus is Lord over everything and you submit to his authority or you just don't get that kind of koinonia. Yeah. That has to be the base for it. Mm-hmm. So that's from last week, our lesson from last week, that truly human, truly divine. That's, we didn't bring it up and I should have. Like Christ is over the whole realm spiritual and and the physical i'm yes. glad you brought that up i mean that's one of the reasons as to why i think we emphasize that in the church is that you don't com- compartmentalize for sure I right, didn't I think you, go ahead oh i was just going to say i think you brought this up last week in the lesson but you made a good point about um you made a good point about jesus after he had resurrected he went in the divine nature of his body like he walked through through locked doors he walked through walls but he also ate yeah and And, so so you don't separate those two right it's one um so we've already answered it but i want to highlight our discussion question uh our highlighted discussion question for the week how might the church's efforts to create power and comfort for ourselves here on earth have resulted in and be resulting in our missing out on receiving true power from God. Like, I honestly think we just answered it in the last three minutes, but it's the reliance on other things. It's the reliance on the power of government. It's the reliance on the power of tricks in our worship service. And I say tricks, you know, those little things that we put in there to ooh and awe people, but don't necessarily connect with, with the gospel or whatnot. It's all these things. Um, right. And those things have created a mentality in our church where when people come in and sit in their queue, they're members of an audience right. and they're not, they're not participants. Deep, participants. Right. I couldn't get the word out. Well, we, that's, a hate. that's why we're <laughs> here together. It's a team um, effort. Team yeah, effort. No. You know, it's horrible. You know, you go back and listen to these things and like, like I did it a couple weeks ago where you just, throw out like a book or reference and it's the wrong reference and you know, it's the wrong reference, but in real time, you don't know, you know, just all the little things you do wrong. Anyway, what thanks for grace. Wrong? Yeah. Thanks for grace for everybody. Um, parting shots for anybody. Good lesson. Something Good lesson. for us to think about this week. You know, uh, what's, what's Lord of your life yeah. and, and where are you at today? Logan. Hashtag no king but Christ. No king but Christ. I'm with you on that. There you go. All right. So then the next week that we get together, it'll be me doing a lesson and it will be about evangelism. So get ready for that. Um, but until then, the Lord bless you and keep you and go forth. No. See you guys.